uh, the song we just sang, do you, do you believe that? Is, that? is that the kind of description of your heart? You'd rather have Jesus? Amen. Amen. I'd like to say that that's true of me 24-7, but I think that if I were honest with you and with myself, which I'll, I'll do that, I'll be honest with myself at least, I'm not sure I always do desire Jesus above all else, right? I mean, we, 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 kind of, we live in a world where Satan is constantly trying to talk to us and tell us, hey, it's all about you. What do you want? What do you need? Our preferences, our desires have taken the highest priority in this world, and yet God's invitation over and over again is, come to me. All who are tired and weary and heavy laden, right? Come to me. Come to me, all those who thirst. Come to me and drink from the well of life. That's Jesus' invitation, and it's given over and over and over again. Why? Because we wrestle with this reality day by day, and we need his invitation day by day to come to him, to come and drink, to feast, to receive life, because we don't always desire Jesus above all else. This morning, we're going to start a series called In the Fire. And it's going to be a study through the book of Daniel. We'll get through part of it this spring, and then we'll pick up the second half of Daniel later on in the fall. But what I want us to think about as we go through this series is, yeah, there's a story in the book of Daniel how he, uh, his, his three friends are thrown in a fiery furnace. But, but more than, than his three friends being thrown in a fiery furnace is the type of furnace that our lives are... are, are are living in, in this world, where there is a refinement that happens, where we become aware of those desires on our heart that are, that are pulling us away, that are drawing us away from, from desiring Jesus above all else, where, where God puts our hearts into that fiery furnace and refines our desires, our wants, which makes a difference. It, it means something. It matters. Because it it not only changes the trajectory of our lives, more than that, it aligns us with God's purposes and God's plan and, and, and the, the things that God will accomplish in this world. Church, if there's one drum I could beat in this day and age, it's that you and I are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. The purposes in this world, not just for this world, but, but for ourselves, are, are, are not to, to find comfort and, and fulfillment and satisfaction. It's to realize the, the, the larger plan, the larger story that God has unfolded from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to, hit, to, the, to the return of our Savior, and, and, and into eternity as we spend time with Him. And so, you and I are going to face difficult times in this world. And that's okay. It's not a bad thing. You didn't do something wrong. The reality is that that's evidence of our God transforming and renewing our lives. And the reason he's able to is because he's a sovereign God. That's what we're going to look at in the book of Daniel. That's what we're going to see, at least from the first half of the book of Daniel. We'll, we'll learn more about what the future looks like uh, in the, the latter half of the book of Daniel. But today... In this new series called In the Fire, we're going we're gonna to start off in this, uh, this book of Daniel, a, a, a book that we, 
we're, we're familiar with. I mean, if you, if you grew up in the church, if you went to Sunday school, you probably heard some of the stories about Daniel in the lion's den or, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown into the fiery furnace. But, but more than these adventurous Bible stories of, of faith and, and transformation, I think the book of Daniel teaches us something more about God's character. See, when we approach these stories, we oftentimes think, how can God's word tell me how to live, how to live that successful life? But more than telling me how to live my life, the book of Daniel tells me something about who God is, what his character is, how he's faithful, how he provides, how he cares, how he has a plan for this world. So the book of Daniel is going to teach us all about the character of God, namely his sovereignty over every earthly king and kingdom. It'll tell us a little bit about how we can be loyal to God and trust him when we're living in exile, when we're living in a, a culture that's kind of contrary to the culture that we believe we're supposed to be living in according to the Bible. But, but beyond that, I want to challenge us to, to think about God, think about his character. Don't, don't approach the book of Daniel saying, okay, God, how can you teach me how to be a better believer, how to be a better person? Teach me about who you are, what you're doing, what you're going to accomplish. Moms, today's Mother's Day, and how many of you have invested tirelessly in your children hoping that they'll get it, right? Hoping they'll clean their room, hoping they'll do their homework without having to be told, hoping, in, hoping against hope, Right? At the end of the day, you, you realize you're at your wit's end. Why? Because no matter what you try, your kids, well, they're an individual person, right? And as much as they want to behave, they're broken as well, and they won't always behave. But there is someone that we trust in beyond our scope, beyond our ability to influence our children and raise them up to, to be these perfect little beings. There's a God who is at work in their lives. And Mother's Day is a great reminder of that, right? Because moms, no matter how hard you work, it never actually fully turns out the way you think it will, right? And that's okay. That's our hope. Because we have a God who is sovereign. And he works beyond the scope of your ability to see and understand what he's doing in their lives. There will be a time where you will look back on your, ch your child's life and you'll realize where God was shaping them, directing them, guiding them, because you didn't try harder to be a mother, but because you invested in your relationship with God yourself. So today, we're going to learn about the sovereignty of that kind of God, a God who works beyond the scope of, of our uh, you know, earthly eyes. But our, our task, as we approach this book, is to kind of rest, to, to sit with this question, is to say, who or what do we place our trust in? Right? If, if, if Daniel's going to give us a picture of who God is, then we have to ask ourselves, do we trust in that God? And if not him, what are we trusting in? Because you're all trusting in something. Every human being trust in some person or something. None of us are autonomous. None of us are independent. I think sometimes we like to believe we are. We, we desire independence. We don't want to be micromanaged or, or controlled by another person. But not one human being on this planet ever lived or ever will live that was not dependent on someone or something 
else. And so we have to ask ourselves, who or what do we place our trust in? Is it ourselves? Do we think, you know what, I know best. I can tell what's, what's right and what's wrong. I, can, I, I, I know what the right path is. I, you know what, you got a problem in your life? Let me tell you what I think you should do. Right? Is it ourselves? Do we, do we kind of trust in ourselves to be the, the, the highest authority, the best uh, source of wisdom in, in our world? Or, or, or maybe it's others. Maybe it's some other person, right? Uh, a politician or, or, or a, a teacher or, you know, someone that we, we really love in our lives. Or, or more than human beings. Is it a higher power? Do you believe in a higher power, a higher being, some being outside of yourself, outside of the world that, that is able to influence and control this world. Well, what is that higher power? Tell me a little about his character. Or what do they do? Who are they? Where are they? All those things. See, the reality is when we trust in mankind to have the ultimate authority, the, the ultimate power in our lives, we'll always be let down. There will always be a president or a pastor or a senator or a CEO or or even ourselves, will always let others down. Why? Because we're, we're human. Sin is real. Evil is real. And it's not just real out there. It's real in here. There's not one of us who is not touched by the brokenness of sin. See, when we trust in mankind to have that ultimate authority, uh, we're going to face a lot of disappointment. But here's the thing. The gospel of Jesus gives us hope, not disappointment. Right? You might be saying, hey, we're in the Old Testament here. We're in the book of Daniel. Daniel points to the life of Christ. Daniel points to the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that hope in a place where you feel hopeless when you think about all the many ways that man has let us down. There is hope to be found in the gospel of Jesus through the book of Daniel. In the first question in the Westminster Catechism says, what is our only hope in life and in death? Uh, to which the, the scriptures and the catechism teach us to answer with, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you trust that? Do you, do you believe, here's the thing, do you believe that you are your own, that it's your life, that it's your decisions, that it's your future, that it's your destiny, that your time is your own, that your resources are your own? Do you believe all these things? Or do you believe that you're a part of a bigger narrative, that you actually belong both body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ? Trust me, how you answer that question matters. And not just philosophically as you're sitting around the table having a cup of coffee debating with friends. It has practical implications for your life. Is the time that you have been given this week meant to be spent for your own glory? Or do you belong to someone else? And is that someone else trustworthy? Are they faithful? Is, there, is the, the expense of their power, is it for their own purposes or for something better? See, the book of Daniel teaches us about trusting in this, the God, the God who gives us this kind of hope, uh, 
that will, that will never let us down. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. It'll be on the screen. But I'm, I'm going to read the whole chapter 1 of Daniel. And, and it's kind of fun because when we read in Daniel, at least these first six or seven chapters, there's, there's, a, there's a history going on. There's a narrative going on that we get to follow. So it's kind of, you know, it's fun. Listen to it as a story. Listen to it as the, 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 the biography of a person's life. And let's understand more deeply about this God who gives us hope. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the, and, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs came, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you, are, you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Father, this is your word, and we give you thanks for that. Lord, beyond my words, I pray that your words would bear fruit, that my words would be cast aside, and we would only be uh, confronted with the word that you have spoken, the word that you have revealed, the way you have made yourself known to us. Give us eyes to see, 
ears to hear, hearts to embrace, minds to comprehend your truth this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a lot going on in this story that we have to pay attention to. And and forgive me, I'm going to go a couple minutes longer than I normally do because this is going to be setting us up for kind of the context of the book of Daniel. This is a story that takes place around the year 605 B.C. It was after the the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And, and, And it's a story that teaches us that the authority that's left to man... A power that's put in man's hands is destructive, and it sets man against man, right? But that's not so with God. With, with man, things, people are torn down. They're, they're hurt. They're damaged. They're, their growth is stunted. Nations are, are, are enslaved to other nations. As the saying goes, power corrupts. Absolute power absolutely corrupts. But, but God reveals a different kind of sovereignty. God reveals a different kind of power, one that's driven by love. It's not selfish. It's, it's characterized by, by his faithfulness. And it's seen in his continuous provisions for his people, even after they time and time again turn their back on God. God is there to make a way for them. So before we kind of explore what kind of power and sovereignty King Nebuchadnezzar is, here in the beginning of Daniel, we're given a picture of another human being who is a bad example of, of power and, and authority. See, we've got to ask the question, why is this happening? Why would God allow the Babylonians to come and conquer Jerusalem? To understand why all this is happening, we've got to look at the life of Jehoiakim. So back a few years when in 609 BC, when Jehoiakim is named king of Judah, the southern kingdom uh, after Israel splits into two kingdoms, Jehoiakim doesn't come to power the way you would anticipate, anticipate him to come, the, the, the way that it was expected that, uh, you know, the, the son would raise up into power. In fact, Jehoiakim's brother was initially named the king of, of Judah, the southern kingdom. However, Judah, specifically Jerusalem, comes under attack from the Egyptians. See, Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, is a good king. He, he's, he follows the Lord, but, but he makes a mistake and he confronts Pharaoh Necho, the, the Egyptian king coming through his territory, and, and they go to battle and, and Josiah gets killed. And so Josiah's other son uh, come, is is assuming the throne, but then Pharaoh Necho, who just defeats him, says, no, 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 no. I want to put someone on the throne who I can control, who I have power over, who I can say, no, 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 you're mine. You, you, you owe your allegiance to me. And so Jehoiakim is, is the king that he puts on the throne. Here's the problem, though. See, Jehoiakim isn't always known as Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was originally called Eliakim. Eliakim is his Hebrew name. Jehoiakim was the name that the Egyptians gave him. They renamed him. And, and, and renaming him was Pharaoh Necho's way, again, of, of, of subjugating him, of, of, of exercising his authority over him, of saying, hey, this is what sovereignty looks like. I'm going to rename you. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to change your identity. You are my puppet. You do what I say, right? Well, either way, Jehoiakim is, is, is corrupted by what little power, what little responsibility Pharaoh Necho gives him, and it, and it plays out poorly. See, Necho demands that Jehoiakim pay him tribute. For, for letting him live and serve as the king, right? He's like, hey, I've been really good to you, so what you have to do, you have to pay me. I'm going to tax you. you got to give me some of your gold. And Jehoiakim's like, I'm not giving him my gold. So he taxes the people of Israel. And he says, listen, you guys got to pay this fee. And so he, he instills this, this tax on the people of Israel and, and, and pays Necho what Necho demands. Now, there's something going on here that we need to pay attention to. Because this is a significant thing in, in Israel's history. You may remember when God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. What does he do? As one of the last things they do is they leave Egypt. God gives them a command. He commands Israel to plunder the Egyptians, to take their gold, to take, like, they, they, God gave them favor with the Egyptians, so they were taking the, their gold and their riches and, and, and taking it with them as God led them out of slavery in Egypt. Fast forward to Jehoiakim's reign, and now the very, one of their very own is taxing them to give that gold back to the Egyptians. Now, it's probably not the same gold. It's, in fact, I know it's not the same gold. But in theory, you see the, the opposite direction that this is going in. When God rescues Israel, he gives them favor and they plunder the Egyptians. But under an evil king who disobeys God and goes against God's will... This king plunders the people of Israel and gives it to the Egyptians. Now, not, that's not a major point here in the book of Daniel, but it's interesting to note what the sovereignty of man looks like. And Jehoiakim is our first example of what that looks like. In addition to plundering the, the people of Israel, you may think, well, he took money. Not, not the, not the, I've, I've seen that happen before in this world, right? But in, in the book of 2 Kings, Jehoiakim is, is described as a king who filled Jerusalem with the innocent blood of his own people. He was a murderer. And not just once or twice, he like, described as he filled Jerusalem with the innocent blood of his own people. This is not a good leader. This is not a, a king you want to give authority over your life to. This is not someone that Israel was excited to give allegiance to. King Jehoiakim never truly had authority. He may have had the title, but he never really had authority. Right? Even in doing those things, the outcome of Israel's history was not in his hands. Right? Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Let, let me just read them for us again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. See, no matter how much of a failure Jehoiakim was as a king, he's not the cause or the power behind the fall of Jerusalem. Do, do you see what I'm saying there? No, no matter how much of a failure, and no matter how disobedient Jehoiakim was, he is not the cause or the power behind the fall of Jerusalem. 
God did not give up his sovereignty over Jerusalem for a time to Jehoiakim to see how things would work out. God is still in control. The Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. Only God could allow this to happen because why? It all belongs to God. See, the the key to understanding what's going on here and understanding real authority and, and real power is that you can't give away what you don't have. You can't give away what you don't own. And Jerusalem was never Jehoiakim's. It belonged to God. So Jehoiakim is not a good picture of what it means to be sovereign, right? But neither is King Nebuchadnezzar. See, when, when King Nebi comes on the scene to demonstrate his power over Judah, he, he takes some exiles, not all of them at once, but he takes kind of his first wave of exiles from Jerusalem and sends them back to Shinar, back, back to the land of the Chaldeans where Babylon was. And not only does he take some people, he takes some of the vessels from the temple. Now, there's socially speaking or culturally speaking, this was communicating something. He may not have necessarily given us words here in this moment, but by taking these vessels and placing them in his God, he's basically saying, ha ha, look, my God's better than your God, right? Look, we, we, we're going to take some of the objects of your worship and we're going to place them in our temple and look how this is going to work out. He's basically saying, you know, I don't know if you own a dog, I own a dog. Uh, dogs will mark their territory, right? King Nebuchadnezzar is marking his territory. He's saying, that's mine. This is mine. They owe their allegiance to me. I've got their God's vessels in my temple. Their God serves my God now. Look at this, right? And so after, Dan, after taking Daniel and his friends and, and these vessels back to Babylon, uh, we're, we're told this in, in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now listen, the king is not interested in bettering these young lives. He's choosy in who he's selecting. Why? Because he's looking for those that he can surround himself with skills and ability and wisdom and knowledge. He's not just looking for any Joe Schmo. He, he wants people that will benefit his kingdom and his leadership. And, and what we're going to see in these next verses is how King Nebuchadnezzar is going to flex his power or what he thinks is his power, right? He commands. He sets the agenda. He assigns. He gives them food and drink. He tells them what to do. His, his, selection, his kind of criteria for selecting people for his court is what's followed. But all of that is for his own purposes, not for the good of the Israelites. See, he says the, the text says that, that, that he selects those of royal family. Again, you know, he, he wants people of prestige, people that will make him look better. 
But, but more than just selecting them for the benefit of, of, of making him look better, this selection, if you think about it, these are the people that were to be the influence on Israel's future generations. They were the ones that were going to carry the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the history of Israel on to the next generation. And so what King Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately doing is he's taking these people and he's replacing their history and their heritage with a new learning, teaching them of the ways of the Chaldeans, the history of the Chaldeans, the, the culture of the Chaldeans. And, 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 and what he's doing is he's taking this people that would have known the history of Israel and giving them a new history, a new heritage to learn and to study and to, to pass on to future generations. He's essentially, it's essentially trying to wipe out the past, wipe out future generations of the nation of Israel by assimilating them into the Chaldean culture. But here's the thing. In exercising authority over his captains, captives, sorry, he doesn't just take away their freedom. He takes away who they are, right? See, they're, they're being indoctrinated into the, into the ways of the Babylonians, and yet time and again, we know that the Israelites have been commanded, remember that I am your God. I am the Lord your God who led you up out of the land of slavery, right? Israel was taught to never forget their history, to never forget their heritage, to never forget the one that they can truly trust to be sovereign over their lives. If that's not manipulative enough, the Babylonians think, hey, if we're going to educate them, but you know what, let's just throw in, we're going to change their names as well. Let's see if we can uh, get them to, to think differently about who they are by, by not calling them by their names, but calling them by something new, something different. See, Daniel and his friends had some very specific names of significant meaning. Take a look at verse 6 and 7 with me again. Among these, were, among these exiles were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Mish. Oh, sorry, um, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So they're replacing their Hebrew names with Babylonian names, but their Hebrew names were significant. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means Yahweh helps. See, their names collectively point to the gracious sovereignty of God, the, the incomparable power and authority of God and, and his desire to, to, to reign over his people. But they're replaced with uh, the, the Babylonian names. And, you know, though we don't necessarily know all the meanings of the Babylonian names, we do know that those are names that point to the gods of Babylon. So again, we're not just talking about their social and, and, and uh, historical background and their identity. We're talking about their religious identity as well. And Daniel and his friends are told, listen, you gotta, 
you got to assimilate. And they've got to discern, you know, where they draw the line. They're living as exiles in a foreign land. They owe their allegiance to God, not to King Nebuchadnezzar. They have to determine where they draw the line in walking faithfully with God in a foreign land. See, I think King Nebuchadnezzar is a good example of how man sees sovereignty over people and land. Right? Man sees land and others as being objects that we should conquer, right? I need to convince them to see things my way. I want this, so I'm going to take that. I, I, I'm going to, I, I mean, what it means to truly be a leader is to have power over people, be able to tell people what to do and, and how to do it, right? But trust and being trustworthy has no part in King Nebuchadnezzar's understanding of his power and authority. Allegiance is not something that people give him. Allegiance is something he requires, he takes from people. And if they're not going to give it when he asks for it, he's going he's to bend their will to his power and his authority. He's going he's to change their name. He's going to change their location. He's going he's to re-educate them. He's going he's to try to make them forget their past, the, the, the history and the heritage of their nation. But that's not how God works. Man enslaves, God rescues, right? They're two very different pictures of power and authority. See, neither Jehoiakim nor Nebuchadnezzar proved to be capable of truly holding, or of holding true power and authority, and yet God proves that he's the one true sovereign, even when God's people are walking in a foreign land, even when they, they're walking through a place that feels very foreign to them, that, 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 that is unhospitable to their faith and their, their culture that they've come from, God remains faithful and present to his people. Take a look at verses 8 through 9 with me. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. See, God, God doesn't manipulate Daniel or force him to, to throw his allegiance to God. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to, uh, to uh, reorient his mind or anything like that. Daniel resolves himself to walk with God faithfully. He freely and willingly gives his trust and allegiance to God. And God gives Daniel favor. So I think it's important for us to note that, that, that favor comes upon Daniel when he resolves to remain faithful to God. See, just as God, not King Nebuchadnezzar, gave Jerusalem to the Babylonians, so God, not King Nebuchadnezzar, gave Daniel favor in the court official's eyes. And the court official is scared of the king, and yet somehow this man agrees to Daniel's plan, right? See, Daniel, Daniel was, or God, sorry, God was Daniel's true provider and protector, 
when Daniel was exiled in a foreign land. Look at verses 10 through 14. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths of who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them and tested them for 10 days. Do you, does that make sense to you? What would, I mean, if this court official is afraid of even being killed, what, what would convince him that this is a good idea to even give Daniel and his friends 10 days to try this out? Only the power and the provision of God, right? This court official's decision to trust Daniel goes against reason and logic, right? If, if you're in that court official's role, and your head's on the chopping block, are you going to put your trust in Daniel's hands and the, the hands of his friends? Those who are your captives? Those who you just defeated? No. It goes against logic and reason. And yet God provided favor and compassion for Daniel and his friends so that this court official would make a decision that contradicts logic according to his own worldview and goes along with, with what Daniel and his friends propose. Church, this is what we sometimes call God moments. Moments when we see God's provision show up and make a way where we thought there would be no way. This is what it means to trust in a sovereign God, that God has sovereignty in every situation, so even when it seems like there could be no more despair that we could soak up, God can still make a way just as he does here for Daniel and his friends when they're faced with a very real problem. See, Babylonians could go ahead and change their names. Doesn't really, doesn't really make a big difference here, right? But to, to require that they eat food from the king's table risks breaking the Mosaic laws in Leviticus that, that govern how they eat food and what foods they eat. Right? They, they couldn't know if the food that was coming from the king's table had been offered to, their, to the Babylonian gods. They didn't know how it was prepared or, or even in some situations what was actually in it. Now, if you're a parent and you have a child who has a food allergy, either to nuts or something else, very serious risk, and someone hands you something like a cookie or a cupcake that, that's not in a package labeled and tells you, you know, if it was made at a facility that had nuts or not, or, or what's in it. Do you trust it and do you give it to your kids? No. You don't know what's happened or, or what's going on in that, or what's in that food or how it was prepared or anything like that. And so it is for Daniel and his friends, they don't know that the food coming from the king's table would potentially defile them or not. Now, maybe it wouldn't, right? We don't know what, the king, what food was on the king's table. The point is, because they don't know, they don't want to risk defiling themselves before Yahweh, before their God, right? Nonetheless, sorry, nonetheless, even though they're, uh, they, they want to 
avoid the risk of defiling themselves. That's, that's a risk they're not willing to take. The risk they are willing to take is still pretty risky and requires courage. See, by not eating the food that the king offered them, they risk defending the king. The king finds out, hey, they're not eating my food. They're going to risk upsetting the king under whose kingdom they're now living, right? They're risking upsetting him and possibly being on his naughty list, his no-no list, right? But not only does it risk putting them in poor favor with the king, it risks their ability to climb the corporate ladder of, of life in Babylon, right? Like, they're, they're, they're not really necessarily joining the group, joining the crowd, and, and going along with the masses on this one. I mean, you, you think about the things that we face in our life, the things we do to fit in or to, to, to kind of to climb the, the, the social hierarchy that we live in. For Daniel and his friends, the dividing line for them was anything that risked their relationship with God was a risk they were not willing to take. They'd rather risk losing their, their favor with the king than lose their, their relationship with God. They also risk by not eating the food and instead eating the vegetables, they, they, they looked looking weird to the rest of the people that were in training. I mean, you think of all these other elites that were, uh, were going to be learning and growing together, and then you got these, these Hebrew guys over here that are only eating vegetables and drinking water. You know, what's up with them? They're making us look bad, or, or they think that they're better than us. I mean, just you can imagine there's a lot of risk in their relationship with the other people that, that Daniel and his friends were, were learning and growing with. And yet, God again gives them favor. Favor with the chief official who went along with Daniel's plan for the 10-day test. This test, uh, sorry, the, the outcome of the test we see in verses 15 and 16. Let's read it. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, I've tried diets. I've spoken about that here. I've, I've tried out different diets. And I've never found one in which I become fatter by eating vegetables for 10 days. <laughs> if you ever need evidence for why it's not good to go on diets, go to Daniel chapter 1 and take a look at this vegetable, all-vegetable diet. My point is this, that goes against reason, right? E eating vegetables and drinking water for 10 days, honestly, if you were to do that today, you're not going to get fatter. It goes against reason. Only God's sovereignty and his ability to provide could make it possible where Daniel and his buddies would look and be healthier 10 days later for eating vegetables and drinking water than these other people that are eating rich food. When, when we talk about the king's food, by the way, we're not talking about like junk food. We're not talking about like Slim Jims and Doritos. <laughs> we're talking about quality food, good food, a balanced diet, rich food. So, so, so you compare rich food to vegetables for 10 days, you expect, we expect 
These people are eating the rich food to be healthier. Not so. Why? Because God intervenes in his sovereignty. God made a way for Daniel and his friends to be successful in the land of Babylon and and uphold their faithfulness to God. To not sit there and tear down the Babylonian culture and rail against the Babylonian culture out of their desire to express their love for God. No, they quietly, gently remain faithful to God. And God makes it possible. Not just possible, but blows, the, blows our expectations out of the water. God provides, God cares, God works on his people's behalf as we trust in him in a land of exile. But he doesn't do this because he wants more people to exercise over like, like King Nebuchadnezzar does. He, he does those things of, of caring and providing so that, so that you'd have more people to have power over. No, that's not what God does. God does it for our benefit and for our glory. For his, sorry, for his glory. Take a look at the the last verses of chapter 1 with me. Starting in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's going to come in key later on in the book of Daniel. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdoms. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. None was to be found like Daniel and his friends. Church, this is not a prescription for how we survive in in exile necessarily. First and foremost, we need to pay attention to God's sovereignty to God showing up in a situation and doing what doesn't make sense according to our own human logic, but he does it according to his plan and his purposes. God has power over even one of the most powerful earthly kingdoms of the day. God can work in in even the most minute of details like the diet we eat or what we do with our time. And they were found to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in Babylon. God's people are better, found to be ten times better than all the people of the the magicians and enchanters of Babylon. Do we see God's glory in that? Right? Babylon conquers another nation, enslaves them, takes them out of their land, tries to teach them in such a way that they forget their own past. And at the end of that three-year process... Who are, the, who are the best students? Daniel and his buddies. At the end of that three-year process, who's better, Daniel and his buddies or, or, or the very best of the best magicians and enchanters in Babylon? God's people. 
right? This is about God's sovereignty, God's ability to work in our lives, God's ability to work in the world, not just so that our lives are better, but so that his glory is seen. See, that's the sovereignty of God honoring Daniel's faithful commitment to trust in God. But, but one more thing. You see that very last verse of chapter 1? And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus is not a Babylonian king. King Cyrus is a Persian king. Daniel remains in his role of leadership and responsibility in Babylon, still has uh, his kind of honor and prestige from God, and remains alive in Babylon even more, even longer than the Babylonians do in King Nebuchadnezzar. He outlasts King Nebuchadnezzar until another king comes in and conquers the Babylonians and takes over leadership. But here's the thing. This is the beauty of the sovereignty of God. Church, don't, get, don't fall into despair when, when your circumstances are rough and you're having a hard time seeing God. Why? Because God's not done writing the story of faith in this world. And we see that here in the book of Daniel in this first chapter. Listen, when Daniel outlasts King Nebuchadnezzar, there's something very special going on there. But we hear about it through the prophet Ezra. There, there are a number of prophets that are contemporary to Daniel and his friends, Jeremiah, Ezra, Nehemiah. But Ezra records something special in the beginning of Ezra chapter 1. Listen to what we read in uh, Ezra chapter 1. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted with the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with the vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Once again, God is sovereign. Not only does God make a way to return the people of exile back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but he gives them favor so that the plundering that they experienced through Jehoiakim was now being replaced. God gave them favor with the surrounding people to, to bring vessels of gold and goods and beasts and costly wares. But not only that, but God makes a way for those very same vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple to say, ha ha, our God is better than your God. And, and King Cyrus, some foreign king, acknowledges the authority of the God of Israel and says, no, 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 these vessels, they go back to, to Jerusalem. For when the temple is rebuilt, these vessels will take the rightful place in the temple of the God of Israel. 
See, God works through his people. God works through foreign people, people outside the culture of God's kingdom. God works in every place because he is sovereign over every earthly king and over every earthly kingdom. And he does it to accomplish his purposes and to to declare his glory. God is not done writing the story of faith in this world. But when he is done, the end will look much like what we're reading here at the end of Daniel chapter 1. God will restore and redeem his people to their kingdom with him. Church, our situation in the days that we're living in is, is, is similar to those of Daniel and his friends. We, name, we may not be threatened with being thrown into a lion's den or a fiery furnace, but we do live in a world that isn't hospitable to God's kingdom culture. And I think sometimes we're tempted to fight with the world and say, no, 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 the world needs to operate the way our kingdom works. No, we need to focus on just being faithful to the kingdom of God and letting God's sovereignty work through us to make his glory seen. So it's important that we remember Daniel's story. It's important that we remember what happens when when those who are loyal to the kingdom of God find themselves in a foreign land. Stay the path of faithfulness. Trust God's sovereignty. Let God's glory shine as it did in Daniel's life. When King Cyrus took over power and sent the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to replace the vessels from the the temple of God back to their rightful place. Let God's glory shine through his sovereignty at work in your life. Give him your allegiance. Trust him. Even when you feel like there is no hope, there is hope. What is our only hope in life and death? Our only hope in life and death and in death is that we we belong body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we trust you to accomplish all that you desire to accomplish in this world. Lord, we sing that song, I'd rather have Jesus, and it's aspirational, knowing that there are times where we, we must confess we, we don't rather have Jesus, that that battle in our own hearts between good and evil is raging, and yet, Lord, we know in, in our heart of hearts that you alone are sovereign, that you alone have authority in this world. Sin will not win. Death has been defeated. Evil is done for. And so we need, to, we need to trust you more, Lord. Give us the courage, like Daniel and his friends, to remain faithful to you when, when our faith is compromised, when, when our faith is being threatened to be compromised, sorry. You are faith work. Uh, faithful and, and trustworthy. You've made that known to us. Lord, help us not only to, to realize that and understand that for ourselves, but to, to cling to it, to embrace it, to trust it. Have your way in us. 
because you are sovereign. We belong to you. This world is your world. And so we trust you with it. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.